0: Bonjour, dear listeners, and welcome to Defense, the conversation about defense you never knew you always wanted to have. I'm Dr. Alex Valenti, and today my resident electronic warfare specialist, Dr. Thomas Withington, is joining me again, this time in our virtual bar, for another exciting episode on women in World War II and, you guessed it, electronic warfare. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for joining again. How are you doing today?
1: I'm alright Alex, it's always a real pleasure catching up with you and um, I'm sitting here comfortably at home in Toulouse and as the sun has gone past the yardarm I am nursing a cocktail and you'll be pleased to know as we're talking about encryption, decryption and the shadowy world of espionage I am drinking, in fact, can you guess which cocktail I'm drinking?
0: Well, that would be cheating because you told me ahead of time. Ah. (laughs)
1: Well, listeners, I'm drinking a vodka martini. I thought that would be appropriate, given James Bond's liking for the drink and that we're talking about espionage.
0: That is very appropriate. I have to say I am failing in in this because I have a glass of red wine right there ready for me. So uh, you're doing much better at espionage than I am already, (laughs) which is good because you're my expert. And so as you said, today we're going to be talking about uh, this book, what we're starting from this book that we read on, which is called Code Girls, the Untold Story of the American Women Code Breakers of World War II written by Lisa Mundi, and this is a book actually talking about uh, espionage that I found on the shelves of the uh, spy museum in Washington DC as I was roaming around the um, museum shop really depressed because I hadn't booked my ticket in advance so I actually never set foot (laughs) on the museum floor but um, the the book uh, is really, really good. I started reading it immediately and never put it down until I finished it and What I really like is that it really is a really in-depth research on on these women, on these code girls who were recruited um, at the beginning, yes, of World War II to, um, to decipher code messages. So before maybe going into a little bit more the story of these women, I was wondering, Tom, if you can tell me a bit about what it means, you know, what is it, decoding, deciphering, um, are, what are the machines, you know, what, what's going on, what are we talking about back in World War II, because things have changed.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned machines, because in the Second World War, this was a very important part of it. Um, it's, an, it it's an interesting subject, the whole issue of breaking codes during World War II. Um, and what was interesting about this book was that there's been a large body of literature that's already been written about what the British did in terms of code breaking, and particularly at a place called Bletchley Park, which mm-hmm. some of the listeners may be familiar with. Bletchley Park is the stately home that's on the outskirts of London. It's just north of London. and It was in Bletchley Park during the Second World War where... British mathematician and expert on decryption, Alan Turing, along with a lot of his colleagues, helped break the German Enigma codes. Now, to go back to your question regarding, you know, what is encryption? What are codes? Well, the actual principle of encoding a message and decoding a message, because you don't want other people to read it, is as old as the hills, Um, probably as old as Humans have had the ability to write and use characters to express a written message. And as um, and is articulated in the book, we use codes every day when we text message. LOL. Mm-hmm. That's actually the only text message abbreviation I know. <laughs> but I'm told that young people use quite a lot of them. So that's a form of code. What was happening in the Second World War was that the Axis powers, so principally the Italians, the Germans and the Japanese, were encoding their messages for obvious reasons, because they didn't want their enemies eavesdropping on them. And they began encoding them before the conflict started. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they were able to do was to harness machinery to do this. So they came up with, as as explained in the book, they came up with a series of ingenious machines that would take a normal length of written text about whatever it might be. And then through mechanical means would change that into a code. And the machine, the the clever thing about the machine was it would contain a key of some sort. Mm -hmm. So the key acts as an instruction on how to encrypt the message, what needs to happen to those series of words and letters to make them into a code that somebody can then decrypt at the other end. The machine would do that, encode the message, and the message would then be transmitted through radio or through telegraph to a recipient and the recipient uses another machine to then decode. So they use their own key that instructs that machine how to decrypt that message. And so you then, by doing that, you then realize what the contents of the message are. Now, the challenge, of course, for the allies was that they had a great deal of difficulty getting the machines that the Axis powers were using. The Enigma code breakers um, in Bletchley Park were very fortunate because they had access to a machine that Polish partisans were able to capture and they could not only help sort of reconstruct their own machines, but crucially they could build, effectively, what were proto-computers, really? um, Giant mechanical calculators that could break these codes and then they could exploit the intelligence within them. So really what you saw in World War II was a mechanized version of what humans have been doing for thousands of years. And that acted as the precursor to what we now do digitally, because all of our phone traffic, internet traffic and things, to an extent is, is encrypted. Mm-hmm. And so that vital work in World War II, and then the advance in computing in the 1960s, the arrival of the microchip, brought those two things together and enabled really the electronic world we know today to exist. So it's a bit of a roundabout explanation, but the, I would say, to go back to your original question, the key thing with World War II was that fusion, it was the mechanization of the principle of breaking codes. And that really was what was so revolutionary.
0: Right. Well, now, this is great, Tom, and there's so many points that I want to get back to in in what you said, um, as always, but I think... The first one that I was thinking about was, as you said, you know, um, they had they came up with these new codes, with these codes that, you know, could not be deciphered or their hopes could not be deciphered. But as we're about to find out, as we go along in this conversation, they did get found out eventually. So does it mean that every so often they also had to change the codes um, and, and switch things around and did the machines do that?
1: yeah I think it's a well, it's a very interesting point you make. What we do know is that the codes did change on a semi-regular basis. Much of the book deals with what the Japanese Navy were doing and the Japanese armed forces were doing in general with their codes and what you see is that um, every so often uh, the codes are changed the codes are either changed in a particular way or a new system of encryption comes to the fore and starts being used and so that obviously has to be, decrypted anew and this is really where the challenge is and you can imagine the frustration of realizing that okay they've changed the codes or this this there's a new code we don't know because you're straight back to the drawing board to try and decipher what that all means and to try and understand the code I think one of the most interesting things that the book articulates is just the epic levels of patience that the people involved in that process had um because it it really if you think about it in your own everyday life when you're trying to understand something it doesn't matter what it is, but you could argue that the process of trying to understand anything, be it understand your tax return, yeah. understand how part of your smartphone works, understand how the new how the instructions to your new um microwave oven work i mean it doesn 't matter what it is but mm-hmm you are performing a process of decryption. You're trying to understand what what does this written information really need? And we all know how frustrating that can be and how many times that we all said, oh, you know, right, forget this. I'm going to go and have a cup of tea and I can't, you know, I've got no patience for it anymore. And, And I think one of the interesting aspects with this is that going back to what we talked about just now, there was a process of mechanization, but the mechanization is only part of it because the mechanization couldn't have existed without the brains of the people. And most importantly, as explained in, in this book, the brains of these amazing women who were very young often, you know, they, for many cases, it was the first job they'd had, or they'd, 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 they'd not really, you know, they'd not really been out into the, into the world, let's say, for very long. And here they are, absolutely pivotal to the US and the Allied war effort. But having that ability, you know, to... Be able to see those systems, be able to break the codes, and to be able to design these incredibly sophisticated machines to do it—it's really mind-boggling, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I think it's—I'm it, really happy you finished on this because um, you mentioned that Bletchley Park had a. Um, had a machine which I, if I recall correctly from the book, um, the U.S. didn't have at the beginning, and it was mostly these women. So again, we're, we're going to be deal, like talking about these women um, in a minute. But I think one of the greatest break, breakthrough was from a I'm not even sure how to pronounce her name correctly, Genevieve Grosjean, or some. Uh, I think that was her name. And she was part of the team, in fact, she headed the team that deciphered the purple cipher. And I think that was the first time that once they had deciphered the cipher, they reverse engineered the machine that they'd never seen, I think, right? It was the first time that they reverse engineered the deciphering machine.
1: It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? You're actually doing this from your imagination. Yeah. You're, you're the, albeit you're taking an educated guess, but you're sitting there and thinking, right, how does this machine that they're using, how does it function? How does it do this? On the one hand, it could be said that once you know something is possible, it's always slightly easier doing it than if you don't know it's possible. Mm -hmm. And this sort of underlines the principle of reverse engineering to an extent. If you take... um, Just going off on a tangent for one second, but I think it is relevant. If you take the military industrial acumen of the Chinese and the Iranians, Mm -hmm. their ability to reverse engineer military equipment or military know-how, it doesn't necessarily have to be kit, it's a really difficult thing to do. But you could argue to an extent it's made slightly easier by the fact that you know someone somewhere has done it. So it is possible. Yeah, It's just a matter of finding out how it's possible compared to having to design something in you. But this is not to degrade the expertise and the importance of what was achieved. Because the problem is, when you think about it with code breaking is you require epic levels of patience with it. Mm-hmm. But war is not a place for epic levels of patience. No. Time is everything. There's a need to always be ahead of your opponent. So you've got these conflicting tensions that, that exist. And I wonder, somewhere in the middle of that, was this competing demand for, we need things now. We need the intelligence now. You know, it's perishable. General Patton once said, intelligence is like eggs best served fresh. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, you, you, you desperately need the intelligence. But on the other hand, you need the patience to go and solve the puzzle. Does that create a creative tension in the middle that then enables these huge breakthroughs to be made?
0: Yeah, I would think so. Um, I, I would tend to agree with you on that one. And I think also, I mean... Kind of somewhat intended I mean they hired a whole army of women um to do this work uh I think the if I recall correctly it was the navy first and then the army in the US who started hiring women and as you were saying before they were hiring them out of out of university out of you know being at home out of their jobs so I know that for instance um one of them was a teacher and um and you know she was hired to do code breaking, and it was saying in the, in the book that. She would earn, I think, I don't want to say something silly, but she would earn something like twelve hundred, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a month, and it, this was double what she would have earned as a teacher. Um, so, I think you know it was it was an amazing opportunity for these women, and it was an amazing kind of workforce for the for the US Army and the US Navy to be able to have all these women and, and, and it says, I think that's what I like about the book as well is that it really it really describes really well the atmosphere in those rooms, like some of them were working crazy hours really crazy hours
1: It is incredible isn't it and you do wonder if the very fact that a nation is at war how that acts as a motivating factor and everybody knew somebody who was involved at the front in some shape or form. People had husbands, brothers, and it was mainly men who were at the kinetic end, if you mm-hmm. like, of the offensive. So at risk of sounding glib, everybody had a card on the table. You know, Everyone had a skin in that game and had an interest in getting their loved ones home safe and winning the war. I mean, they're, they're two very, very clear motivations. I think about this in the context of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. And a a recurrent theme that you hear is people are continually um, amazed and impressed by the resilience and the motivation. Mm -hmm. And let's put it, you know, the sheer bloody mindedness of the Ukrainian, not only their military, but their population as a whole. Well, in a sense, it's unsurprising because everybody has a skin in the game the survival of their own country and also of their relatives who are bravely fighting the Russians. And I think there must have been a similar motivating factor that's at work that that drives people to do the most extraordinary things. As you said, Alex, it's amazing in the book, you read people, they're doing these 24 hour shifts. Mm -hmm. There's this wonderful description that Lisa Mundy has in the book of where you would walk around the, uh, halls and you'd walk around the rooms of the um, these very secret installations being built in Washington DC to do this work and it'd be the dead of night and the smell that would pervade the senses is coffee Mm -hmm. and here we are you know the military run on coffee this is of course if it's in Britain the military run on tea but there we go (laughs) Um, but you've got this whole thing that people are doing these most extraordinary feats in these most extraordinary conditions. They're having no very little time off. They've got very... And when they do have time off, they've got very little in the way of creature comforts. You know, you've got people trying to get... Um, uh, get a, some fruit or some vegetables here and there or or try and get some meat or treat themselves to nylon stockings or whatever it is, you know, because they, it's not like you can down tools and think, right, it's the weekend. We're going to go off and have a big blowout at the restaurant, do some shopping. This is a country at mm-hmm. war, but yet you still keep going. And I, I, I don't mind saying I found that something that was truly inspiring in the book, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and to that point, I think what struck me in the book uh, also is that, uh, you know, she, she talks about, in one of the chapters, she does talk about this. You know, they, they weren't allowed, of course, to say what they were doing. I mean, they were, they were a huge, huge part of the war effort, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, the job they did, the work they did was, was so strategically and tactically important. Uh, but they weren't allowed to tell anyone. And in fact, I think I couldn't find the page, and I'm so mad at myself for not having marked it, where there's an anecdote of a woman who uh, takes a taxi with someone, and it turns out that it's someone from the army, but she doesn't know. And he tests her in a way. You know, he tries to understand if she's going to give away the fact that she's a code breaker. And of course, she doesn't, because she's a strong woman. Uh, As you said, very inspiring. But... That struck me for two reasons. First, because you know, you, as you said, you know, you you have such a so much skin in the game because your your father or your brother or, or your husband or fiance is that you know is out there fighting and you would like to, tell the world that you're, in here helping as well and you can't. But the other thing, and and this is this is what I wanted to say, is that um, Lisa also talks about the differences in pay gaps, and I'm thinking. They had no leverage in a way, you know. They couldn't tell the world they were doing this. They couldn't leverage. Um, and my, my fellow countrymen, the French would be absolutely, would have been appalled because they couldn't have gone and you know uh, manifested in the streets, to be, protested in the streets to be able to get the, the, the pay rise. But just to give an example, you know, um, it says here that um, according to a November 1941 proposed salary memo, female clerks, typists, and stenographers were paid $1,440 per year, dollars, while men doing the same job made $1,620. Women college graduates who had taken an elementary course in cryptanalysis made $1,800; men with the same qualification, $2,000. And this only keeps this gap only keeps increasing as the degrees go up, because then women with master's degrees made 2000 compared to $2,600 for the men with the same degree. And if you get to PhD level, and that's probably why that struck a chord for me, um, women PhDs made $2,300, while men with PhDs made $3,200. Can you imagine? You, you, you're being paid less than a man for doing a job that is protecting your nation, and there's no way you can leverage anything because you're not allowed to say
1: and I think one of the saddest things about that is here we are over 80 years later and we're still talking about disparages mm. between women and men in the workplace. I, I That struck me what you said. And and I thought about that when I was reading the book that depressingly for many women in the workplace, professional women, women doing all kinds of jobs, that situation continues to persist. And that's with the ability to be able to go out and demand your fair share through union membership through protest or whatever it is. And here we are, and we're still talking about this. And that is a very sobering side of this. Um, but it, but as you say, um, it's astonishing also for, given the in, in investment into their education that those women have made, that even that's not enough, you know, mm-hmm. you're still going to uh, be paid less than a man. What I also found astonishing is that, and and I think you can extrapolate this to a wider argument about paid disparities and uh, disparities, I should say, rather than disparities, disparities in general, is that I've yet to hear one even vaguely convincing explanation as to why women generally are paid less than men. Mm -hmm. And the reason I've yet to hear a vaguely convincing explanation is because I expect there are not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with you. I agree. And I think what I would like to, to, to ask you now um, is, you know, we're talking about code breaking. We've talked about what it was. We're talking about how these women cannot fight uh, for the right to be paid just as much. Um, I would like to ask you what code breaking meant at the, you know, for the war. What is, what is the value of this intelligence that you get from all this really hard work?
1: It meant everything. Hmm. I think it would be fair to say. Um, once you crack the enemy's codes, you effectively you get in their brain. Mm-hmm. You know how they're thinking. You know what they're planning. You know where their doubts are. You know where the conflicts are. You know where the weak points are, you know where the strong points are. I mean, effectively, you can learn a lot about your adversary just through understanding what they're saying to each other. It's the reason all of our communications, as we said at the start of the podcast, have some encryption of some sort in them or why we hope it's relatively difficult for people to be able to eavesdrop on them because we have things that understandably we don't want to share with other people or we want to share with certain people. And if you think about it, in wartime, if you're fighting a war of the scale that we saw in World War II, Mm. all of the belligerents are in, in fact incredibly complicated systems of people, of processes, of administration, of ideas, of all kinds of things, of governance, you name it. Um, and they're not systems in the sense that we think of, you know, a system tends to be, we always think of it in terms of a very tightly organized, regulated set of processes to achieve an aim. I mean, one of the, the big arguments against conspiracy theorists often is that actually a conspiracy theorist often wants to think there's a neat system that is governing an outcome. Hmm. And in reality, there isn't. It's chaotic, There are many different systems that interact with each other that ebb and flow and move between them. And through code breaking, that's what you're trying to understand. You're trying to understand, I suppose, ultimately, your enemy's intentions and their reactions to your intentions or their their reactions to your actions. And that was why it was so important. It's very hard to say... How much longer the war would have continued in both the Pacific theatres in the, if you like, the Indian Ocean theatre as well. The forgotten, one of the forgotten fronts of the war, which is, of course, Burma and and uh, India and um, that part of Asia. And then, of course, the European theatre as well. It's very hard to understand how long the war would have continued if we hadn't been able to crack the codes. And also how the war would have ended. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it was. I think it was really, really pivotal. It, it can't be underestimated. But I think that's also why people like Lisa Mundy continue to write books about it because it, it's not only the importance, but it's the covert nature of it. It happened in the shadows. People love mysteries, don't they? You know, and and this has got that. It, this has those ingredients, except it's real.
0: <laughs> exactly, and they're making quite a few movies and TV series, I think, about this. There's one on Bletchley Park. I think there's one coming up on Code Girls, if it's not out there already. So as you said, yeah, this is definitely something that sells uh, for entertainment value, but at the same time is a way of learning uh, history and and the struggle of these women as well, as we were saying. And I think you're totally right in terms of, you know, there was no way of finding out what would have happened if Code Breaking hadn't worked as well as it did in the end. Um, and there's a there's a really good, I mean, I'm not a history buff. I was terrible at history uh, when I was a kid. Uh, and, you know, I read books and I most of the time don't remember things. But in this one, there's a really good uh, description of the Battle of Midway, which all our defense and, and defense history enthusiasts will know was a very defining battle for the Pacific front um, because the Japanese were a really, really good navy with uh, advanced systems, advanced encryption, and you know, they delivered quite a big blow to America, well, to the U.S. with, the, um, with Pearl Harbor, and Midway, in a way, was the United States' way of, of getting revenge. Uh, for, for, for what happened at Pearl Harbor, wasn't it?
1: Well, I think it was the the turning point mm. in, in many ways in the Pacific War. Um, I'm not necessarily an expert on that part of the history of the Second World War, and even, even less on the Pacific Theatre, but the, the impression I've always had is that really this is where the war starts to move into the US favour. And the US is able to inflict quite a significant operational defeat on the japanese navy in particular and from that it then becomes possible to to initiate the island hopping strategy that the US then adopted you know capturing and consolidating key parts of the, the respective island chains within the pacific ocean and then using that as the jump off point for then future conquests and Midway is a really, really fascinating battle, and the, the code element to it is particularly interesting. Uh, because uh, having seen the great Charlton Heston movie, The Battle of Midway, which I'd thoroughly recommend to anybody, one of the best World War II films out there, the whole point of, or the whole importance of the, of the code breaking is, um, is very, very minor. In fact, I'm not even sure if it's mentioned in the film. That may have, of course, been because when the film was made, the amount of public information that was out there regarding what was done was possibly very little. And it's, it's possibly that a lot of the exploits that are talked about in the book remained confidential and classified. So simply there was just there's just no access to it, to, to know the importance of that. But I think, as you say, the midway is a very good and graphic example of the contribution that codebreaking makes to actually changing the operational reality and then that subsequently changes the wider strategic outlook of the war that as we know ends up with the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the surrender of the Japanese. Um, there's another interesting element to that in the book which is the Atlantic the battle of the Atlantic as well mm-hmm. the the damage that the German U-boats were inflicting on Allied convoys that were resupplying Europe and also that were bringing US materiel and troops over into Europe ready for the invasion of D-Day on 6th of June 1944 and how important it was cracking the German Navy Enigma codes to start being able to get on the the, the defensive, or get on the offensive rather than the dif- defensive against the German Navy in the Atlantic. I think one of the things about the the book and about the sort of Ambiance, if you like of the code breaking in general is that we read this 80 years later and we know the outcome of the conflict Mm -hmm. so so we can think oh it's really good that they did these things because uh the allies won the second world war and if you like the liberal rule-based international order that we enjoy today or that we try and defend and fight for um emerged but what you've also got to think about is at the time, the people involved in the code breaking, they just simply did not know the way that the war was going to go. And I would found myself thinking when I was reading the book, imagine walking through those corridors in the really dark days after Pearl Harbor, you know, things aren't great. Midway's not happened yet. The Japanese Navy almost feels supreme. And you just don't know what's going to happen. You just think, hang on, you know, it's conceivable we might lose this. Um, and feeling probably quite despondent, and I'm sure many people were. But suddenly, or maybe not suddenly, but over a period of months or weeks, you, you're able to start cracking into the codes and seeing what the Japanese are up to. And just think of how that must have felt. Of we 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 really, it's like you know when you really need a break. You know, it's like I really, I really in your professional life or whatever, I just really need some luck at the moment. And suddenly it lands. Well, there you go. And so I think that was a really interesting element of the the book is I tried to read it thinking, almost trying to put myself in not knowing the result of World War Two. you know? Mm. It's because you're thinking, we're really on a cliffhanger
0: here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I like that you mentioned this because I was thinking that's exactly why what I think struck me about the Battle of Midway is that they took a massive bet, effectively, in, in, in very broad strokes, what happened is that they they managed to decode, well, I mean, they already had decoded some elements of JN-25, the Japanese cipher, and they managed to, un, to understand in a few messages that what they were referring to as AF was, in fact, Midway. And the Japanese were saying that they were going to attack Midway. And what the U.S. did instead was... Uh, they sent uh, an, uh, a message, not even encoded, in fact. They sent a message saying that Midway was running out of water and they were going to have to leave, they were going to have to to move somewhere else. Um, they were they were struggling, effectively. And the Japanese intercepted the message and and decided to act on it, which, as far as I'm concerned already, is kind of like, really? I mean, this wasn't even an encoded message and you decided to act on this? And the Japanese decided that they were going to... Do a, a, a landing in the Aleutians, uh, Aleutians um I think you pronounce, and uh, to as a kind of decoy. But in fact, they were going to bring most of their fleets to Midway, and when the US were going to come back from getting the um, the supplies they needed, they were going to surprise them there, and they were going to um, annihilate them basically. And of course, what happened is that when the Japanese arrived at Midway, they realized that the Americans hadn't gone anywhere and in fact not only had they gone nowhere but they also had three i think three or four aircraft carriers and if i recall correctly i think midway is also significant in terms of world history because it was one of the biggest first battles fought from like with uh planes from aircraft carriers and yeah well as i said what what i what i found fascinating was this idea of the us got the information and took a gamble saying okay we're going to send the wrong information out there hoping that the Japanese are going to act on it and then we're going to surprise them.
1: Yeah I mean it's it really is putting all your chips on the table isn't yeah. it and just hoping that this is going to work. I mean I love the story about when they they went for Yamamoto you mm-hmm. know head of the Japanese navy and um, they cracked the codes they realized okay he was go- I think he was go- going somewhere like Borgambil or somewhere like that but it was one of the Japanese... Uh, one of the territories Japan had occupied, and they knew that he was he was going to head there, he was going to be escorted by X number of aircraft. This was the itinerary. Apparently Yamamoto always had a very strict itinerary, like mm-hmm. right to be exactly where he said he was going to be at a particular time. I mean, they had it on a plate, okay? You know, they had all of this information. And then they ambush him, and the rest is history. You know, he's, he's, he's killed in the battle. And I just thought this is really fascinating because it reminded me a little bit of what the US did with bin Laden. You know, that you, you, you build up the intel picture. You know that you've got a high-value individual that you can go after. And you gradually put the plan together of how we're going to do this. And really, up until the last moment, you don't obviously know if it's going to be a success. And you probably can't really say with any absolute certainty that the intel you've got is going to be 100% correct. What if the intel itself is a ruse? You know, they've put this out there and Yamamoto is going to be somewhere completely different. But hey, it's a success. And it, this got me thinking about, we're, we're in a, a world now where we've got, um, I was just talking about the Bin Laden raid, for instance, and we we have the um, raids against high value Al-Qaeda members, ISIS members that have been performed by uninhabited aerial vehicles in parts of North Africa and in parts of Middle East, etc., and often on the news, what you hear in the evening is perhaps quite a short piece, or it might be a short piece in the newspaper. Today, the Pentagon confirmed that they uh, you know, that the assassination of whoever it might have been had been successful. Probably very little detail on how it was actually done. Maybe it comes to light later that it was a drone attack or something like this. And this is all you hear. But what you don't hear about is that strike probably took months mm-hmm. of preparation painstaking work, following that person, learning about their habits, learning what they're up to, building this intelligence picture of them. And that probably involves a lot of decrypting communications. These days, it would be cyber, of course. It would be what's moving around the computer networks, what's moving around the cell phone traffic. But the methodology is still exactly the same. It hasn't changed from 80 years ago. It's just we can do it faster and we can do it digitally. And you do think with this book of those number of times where this is really not all or nothing, but you're, you're, you're taking a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it pays off, but it is a risk nonetheless. What it gets you thinking, what it got me thinking perhaps, is that the intel cracking codes, getting that intelligence is so important, but ultimately can only take you so far. Because ultimately, it still comes down to a human decision. Mm -hmm. And all the intelligence is doing, as valuable as it is, is helping you make the most informed decision you possibly can. But ultimately, it is still your decision. And that still makes it pretty high stakes, really.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we're getting into a territory where I think we could talk for hours now. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, unfortunately for today, I think we're going to have to stop here. But... Again, Tom, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I'm really happy that you're, you know, you've embarked with me on this journey of discovering what these amazing women did during World War II, and and we get to discuss this with like tech about technologies and their lives, and you know, again, they weren't honored anywhere near enough at the time. Some have been honored posthumously. Um, memos have been written posthumously, you know, uh, for posthumously for these women, obviously. Um, to to explain, you know, the work they did. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're with me on this adventure. It's a pleasure.
1: Well, it's always a real pleasure being your guest, and it's always a real pleasure sharing conversation with you. Um, and I would heartily recommend the book to anybody um, who's interested. Um, I got my... I just downloaded... A, uh, I think I just downloaded an e-copy from Amazon. You got yours in the Spy Museum yeah. in D.C. How cloak and dagger is that? um <laughs> But let's catch up again soon and have another chat.
0: Sounds good to me. I'll see you soon, Tom. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Mission accomplished. So there you have it, folks. Code Girls is a brilliant book for anyone who wants to discover the extent and importance of these women's role in turning World War II around. Personally, I find these stories very inspiring, and I hope you did too. And if you're hungry for more, fear not, my friends. There are another few episodes scheduled to be released on this topic in the next few months. So until then, don't forget to spread the word and au revoir et à bientôt.